podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Catherine Milkman is the Evan C. Thompson Endowed Term Chair for Excellence in Teaching. She's a tenured associate professor of operations, information, and decisions at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. She's my colleague. She also has a secondary appointment in the Perlman School of Medicine here at Penn. And she is the co-director of the wonderful Behavior Change for Good initiative. The Behavior Change for Good initiative is something you should check out online. They do powerful research to make real good things happen in our society. Katie specializes in the study of self-control failures and how to improve self-control by using big data to glean insights that can help everyone. She got her undergraduate degree from Princeton in operations research and financial engineering, and then her PhD from Harvard's joint program in computer science and business. Poets and Quants named her one of the top 40 business school professors under 40, and she was a finalist for the Thinker's 50 Radar Thinker Award. She publishes in leading social science journals as well as in the popular press. She's brilliant and really practical in the insights from her research for making change happen in your real life. So now, get set to listen and learn how to improve your willpower to better meet personal as well as work-related productivity goals from a master researcher and educator. It's Katie Milkman. Katie, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's start out with just some basic definitions. Self-control. Why is this important uh, as, as something that we need to understand in terms of uh, performance and effectiveness at work? It's a great question. So self-control is important in actually all aspects of our lives, not just at work, but uh, it has been linked with, for instance, higher IQ outcomes if you have more self-control. And in general, it can be a key to productivity. Think about what you need to do to be successful in the workplace. Um, You have to hit deadlines. You have to stay focused. You have Mm -hmm. to avoid the distractions of Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. And that requires self-control. Can I just check my Twitter account for a second? Oh, sorry. (laughs) So um, so being able to focus on tasks is a big part of what self-control is. I see. But it's also important actually to health. And health also spills over into our performance at work. So if we're in better shape, we're feeling better, we take good care of ourselves in terms of our diet and our exercise routines, visit the doctors, we're going to have less absenteeism at work, and we're going to be more present when we're at work. So tell me more about the link to hierarchy. I thought that was something that... Uh well, you, you, you develop as a result of knowledge you're, um, you're exposed to. Um, 
How is self-control related to higher IQ? It's a great question. So um, there's this classic study that was done by Walter Michel, who actually has a new book out very recently um, on the marshmallow test. And uh, he has small children come into a laboratory setting. He puts a marshmallow in front of them and says, uh, you can eat this now if you'd like. But if you wait just a little while, we'll bring you a second marshmallow. And then looks to see how long these kids wait. How much self-control do they have? To delay gratification. To delay gratification. Can they get that huge return, double, you know, double their... Uh, the size of the pie or double their their number of marshmallows. Mm-hmm. And the longer those kids can wait for the second marshmallow, the higher their IQ turns out to be later in life. They, they get higher SAT scores, uh, show all sorts of benefits in adolescence and later. So is the inference there that that's a learned behavior or something that one is born with? It's a great question and something that people are really still struggling to mm-hmm. answer. And uh, What's so- your take? <laughs> I think it's some of both. That would be my my guess. There's certainly research suggesting it's something like a muscle and that you can exercise it and improve its self-control over time. But I don't know to what extent that will improve your IQ subsequently. I imagine it may improve outcomes at work. It certainly improves outcomes in terms of health, which is where a lot of my research focuses. Well, let's talk about how you got into this. Um, it's, it's such an important topic and something that so many people want to learn more about. Uh, can you just say briefly what turned you to this this research area? So it's me search, meaning me search. I study. I like that. What I struggle with. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. No. I I think that you have to be passionate about whatever you study, and so you know the more self absorbed uh, your research can be, the more passionate you're going to be about it. In a sense. No <laughs> doubt. All right. So this is me search, Katie Milkman. What does that mean? How did you? What what? What drove me to it? What drove you? So I've always sort of struggled with, you know, cravings for delicious foods and getting myself to the gym at the end of a long day and following through on all the things I know I should do in the long term, but maybe weren't instantly gratifying. Like and so, what else, if I may ask? <laughs> like focusing at work and not checking Facebook and Twitter, for instance. Um, and, you know, I have I have a major sweet tooth, so staying away from those goodies is difficult. So in general... I struggle with self-control, and that's one of the reasons I got really interested when I started realizing, oh, it's not just me. This is actually a broad phenomenon, and there's people starting to understand solutions, and I can contribute to this literature. And so that's sort of where it came from. Well, so you, so what have you learned? <laughs> and I know that's a big question, but yeah. let's start at the high level. Like, What are the big insights that you've gained from your research on a number of different kinds of self-control failures, as you call them? Like, What are those, and what have you learned about how to avoid them? Well, um, let me start by telling you a couple stories. Okay. So, um, and, and I'll try to stay sort of high level, but um, one of the big things I learned is that uncertainty, incidental uncertainty in your life is a big bummer for self-control. So define that though. Yeah, uh, I'll be in- more incidental. precise. So uh, you don't know something and it's hanging over you. You don't know the results of a medical test maybe, or you don't know where you're going to have a job next year. You're mm-hmm. not sure if your investment's going to pay off. You don't know how you're going to spend your time tomorrow at work because it hasn't been determined yet. Even small amounts of uncertainty like that can be harmful. And um, when I was actually looking for a faculty job is when this idea popped into my mind. And so that's when I started doing some research to causally demonstrate that these kinds of incidental uncertainties hanging over us can actually lead us to reach for the Ben and Jerry's more frequently, um, not to exert the self-control required to sort of read educational materials instead of, um, you know, lowbrow magazines, et cetera. So there are a lot, it can lead us to not stay focused and work on problems. So uncertainty is one big bad. You said incidental uncertainty. What does that mean? Yeah. 
great question. So you could imagine uncertainty that is actually relevant to the decision you're making. Like, I'm not sure about something related to my diet. And so that's going to lead me to reach for the ice cream. But that might make total sense, right? If you're not sort of sure you're going to have food next week, you should eat more calories. Um, what we're showing is something sort of much more irrational than that, in a sense. It's it's uncertainty that's outside of the choice context that's just hanging over you. And so it shouldn't, according to traditional economics, really affect decisions, but we're human. And so it does affect us. It, it causes us to be distracted and we're sort of focused on worrying about whatever that is in the background. And we don't have the resources left over to exert the self-control we need to to do good things in the rest of our life. So the anxiety or worry about something that is important to you but exactly. is but and and you don't know how and it's, it's going to turn out that that sort of uh interferes with your capacity to stay focused on the things that you know you should that's right so that's sort of one big big picture idea uh, i think it's very intuitive and we've demonstrated it as a as a major problem um another big picture idea that i think is exciting and that i've been working on recently uh is sort of good news instead of bad news. And that is when are the moments when we are most motivated to exert self-control? So this actually came up as a question when I was out visiting Google, the head of HR, I was telling him about a bunch of inter interventions I've studied, maybe we'll get to some of them later, that you can use to try to encourage workers to do healthy things and things that they know they should do at a higher rate, like going to the gym and getting mm -hmm. flu shots. And the head of HR at Google said to me, okay, you know, that's great. But when do we deploy these interventions? Is there like a magic time when people will be most responsive to them? And I, I thought, what a great question. We really don't know the answer. And so some of my research has tried to answer that. The first thing that might come to mind when I pose that question could be New Year's. That's what popped into my mind immediately. We know the New Year's effect, right, is out there. So the people, New Year's effect being people generate resolutions at mm -hmm. the beginning of a new year, they set goals, and they redouble their efforts to achieve those goals. So people start diets at a higher rate in January than in other months, they go to the gym more, um, and they presumably do lots of other good behaviors more as well. And so what we wanted to see was, is, you know, is there something systematic about that? And what we hypothesized was that it's not just New Year's. There are actually many fresh start moments in our lives mm. where we feel like, okay, this is the beginning of a new period. The beginning of the day. <laughs> the beginning of the day is Seriously, one kind of... I feel most optimistic when I'm first waking up. Absolutely. So you can think about it within the course of a given day. And actually, there's some research on that, too. And I've even... I've shown that, for instance... Um, People sanitize their hands dramatically more in hospitals earlier in work shifts, and then they're, uh, they sort of get fatigued the more intense their workday, the more their san hand sanitizing declines. Declines always really precipitously as the day wears on, but, hmm. um, but it speeds up the more intense the work. So within the course of a given day, yes, we have fresh starts, but actually even within the course of a calendar year, mm -hmm. we have them. So not just New Year's, but even the start of a new week or a new month or following a birthday. Um, following holidays, these are all moments that sort of segregate the continuous flow of time into more discrete intervals and make us feel like, okay, it's it's a clean start, it's a new me, I have a clean slate, my past failures are behind me, okay, yeah, so I failed to quit smoking last month or last year, but I can do it now because this is a new month or a new year, a new week, and um, we see that people exercise more at the beginning of these fresh start periods, at the beginning of a new week, month, year, the start of a new semester, following holidays, following birthdays, with the notable exception of 21st birthdays. Surprising. Uh, Maybe hmm, not. Let me hypothesize why <laughs> that might result in some 
out of control behavior. Yes, as yeah. my daughter is approaching her twenty first birthday in two months. <laughs> Let me think about that. Never mind. I think I understand. <laughs> so that one sort of makes sense. Um, we see that they search more for the term diet on Google at the beginning of those fresh start moments, and they create goals on a goal setting website, stick dot com, both health related oh, and stick health with irrelevant. Two Ks, right? Stick K K. Yes, <laughs> there's two Ks. Stick with stick K. Yes. All right. So, you know what? I'm thinking that uh, many of the world's religions build in to the, you know, to the cycles of, of time, uh, moments to stop and to both look back and look forward uh, in what are fresh start periods, right? So this wisdom has been around for a while. I, I expect you're, you've already thought about this. Uh, um, what is, is any of your research informed by the you know, the patterns of, of, of religious ritual and how those create a kind of, as one religious scholar called, architecture of time? Absolutely. I think it's a really fascinating topic. And it is it is indeed one of the things that motivated us, this idea that, you know, in some religions you can be born again, or there are purification rituals, or there are even sort of yearly times when you're supposed to reflect or you're supposed to confess to your sins. And of course, Yom Kippur is right around the corner. We're actually doing some research to see whether or not fresh starts occur at a higher rate um, in the Jewish population relative to uh, to non-Jewish populations right after Yom Kippur. So are there more spikes? And, and Yom these... Kippur, for our listeners who don't know what that is, explain. <laughs> yes. Yom Kippur is a, a moment on the Jewish calendar when um, when you're meant to sort of repent for your sins and, and they're wiped clean and you're sort of given a clean slate. Uh, and so that's actually coming up in a I guess this a few weekend. days, yeah, this weekend. And so we've been doing some research around whether or not the, that moment does create a clean slate and increase self-control in that in the population that observes. Hmm. And you expect? And we expect to see that it does. It's, it's too early to know since the holiday hasn't actually arisen yet. And so what else happened at Google uh, as, as you, uh, you know, what, you advise them in terms of the timing of the of these interventions. Yeah, yeah. So, so our advice, based on the research we've done so far, is that these moments when people have this feeling of a clean slate mm-hmm. may be moments when it's particularly valuable to offer them reminders or encourage good behavior. So, we have oh. ongoing research looking into that. Um, this is all sort of early stage, but so far we we have seen these patterns just arising naturally. And the question is, to what extent can you harness them and use them as moments to change behavior? So there'd be extra messaging, uh, perhaps extra incentives even, built in uh, at these moments when people are more ripe for creating Change. a fresh start. Exactly. That's that's exactly the idea. And if, if you think about it, if you have a program that you realize you can't sort of roll it out and advertise it every single day with the same intensity to try to help people, you know, get a personal trainer or change their diet habits and meet with a dietitian or, um, you know, schedule other kinds of uh, of of um, of interventions with people who may be able to help them improve their behaviors, then when would you roll those out? And our research suggests these fresh start moments might be when people are most open and interested in doing things they aspire to do and getting that help. So um, we've got a caller from Minnesota. Uh, welcome to Work and Life, Molly. What's on your mind? Hi. Thank you. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on willpower being um, exhausted, like you only have so much and then you run out, and that's why you give up on a diet or whatever. And what do you do when that happens? Oh, I love that question. Um, so there's great research suggesting that this may indeed be the case, that willpower sort of resembles a muscle, and that just like a muscle, it can be exhausted through repeated use. But also like a muscle, it can be strengthened over time. Um, I have one technique that 
completely fits this category of me search that sort of tries to harness that that concept. And here's the idea. I call it temptation bundling. And I think the idea, it's very simple. Um, imagine someone, we'll call them Katie, who struggles at the end of a long day to get to the gym, lacks the motivation, and who also finds himself wasting a lot of time watching sort of lowbrow TV shows that are thrillers. What if that person only allowed themselves to watch lowbrow TV shows while exercising at the gym? She'd stop um, wasting time at home on, on all this junk TV and start craving trips to the gym to find out what happens at the end of the next show. And not only that, she'll actually enjoy her workout and her show more combined. She won't feel guilty watching the show and time will fly at the gym. So this sort of relates to the idea that we have limited ability to exert self-control because it it turns that on its head. It says, okay, it's hard to exert self-control. We can only do so much of it. So let's actually give in to a temptation and use that and harness that power to get ourselves to do the kinds of things we should do. And it's not just about exercise. You can imagine using this temptation bundling technique in other settings as well. So for instance, imagine uh, only letting yourself to go to the burger joint you crave when spending time with a difficult mentee at work, or only letting yourself for the lady listeners uh, get a pedicure when catching up on overdue emails. Men get pedicures too, Katie. Uh, just hang on Slightly, hi- Slightly lower rate. <laughs> <laughs> um, or only letting yourself... For instance, you know, listen to your favorite radio show or watch your favorite TV show while catching up on household chores. So those are all examples of how temptation bundling can kind of harness. And how does that help in, in response to Molly's wonderful question to you know, strengthen willpower as opposed to have it be something that exhausts you? Right. So because you actually are giving in to one temptation when you're in, engaging in temptation bundling, you could imagine that it hopefully is not nearly as depleting and exhausting to go to the gym because while you're doing it, you're getting this indulgence at the same time. So you're distracted. It doesn't feel like such an exertion of willpower and you're letting yourself give in to an indulgence, which some research has even shown can increase available willpower stores for future self-control decisions available willpower storage so it's something that you like you harvest and hold on <laughs> that's to. the theory that's out there yeah so this isn't really my work this is really the work of um brilliant psychologist roy baumeister mm-hmm. um and and i'm sort of building on his theories here but he's done a lot of excellent work with many collaborators showing that again yeah you can store these resources you can save them up you can spend them and exhaust them and you need breaks in order to restore willpower and you need to give in to these temptations from time to time in order to have more stores of willpower. Molly, thanks so much for that call. Uh, really instructive for all of us. So where have you seen the greatest impact in, in your research in terms of uh, you know, learning how to avoid uh, or you know, building systems that help you to avoid self-control failures? Oh gosh, that's a hard question. The biggest impact. Um, Well, one idea that's so simple, it's almost painful, has had a lot of impact in part because it's free and so lots of people are now using it. And this idea is just prompting people to form concrete plans about exactly when they're going to follow through on behaviors that require self-control. So let me be more concrete. Okay. We ran this experiment with a large Midwestern utility company, and they were holding on-site free flu shot clinics at... At work. So, Which is something that's good for them, good for their people. It's going to reduce healthcare costs. And absenteeism, hopefully, and et cetera. Absenteeism. Okay. Et cetera. And, you know, have healthier workers who are, mm-hmm. again, more present in the workplace when mm-hmm. they're there. Mm-hmm. So they hold these clinics. And normally what they do is they just send out a reminder mailing to everyone. And they say, you know, here are the dates and times and locations where we'll hold these flu shot clinics. 
And we said, you know, we have an idea for making that more powerful. Let's send the same mailing you've always sent, but let's just add one little component. Let's prompt people to write down the date and time when they intend to come. Now, it's not an appointment card. They're not mailing this back to anyone. This is putting it on their calendar? We're just asking them. Literally, there's like a a fill-in-the-blank box on this reminder mailing where we just prompt them. Write it down here for yourself. Think through the date and time when you intend to come in. Everything else about the mailing is identical. So we then run this big experiment. We randomly assign some people to get the standard mailing right. and some people to get this new mailing that has one addition. Write it down. So that's the, that's the variable. So incredibly simple. Has a big effect. Costless to change. We see um, the average rate at which people are showing up for these flu shot clinics goes up by about 13%. Hmm. And uh, we more than double the effect of this intervention when we look at work sites with only one day flu shot clinics, as opposed to, you know, you can come any day this week, uh-huh. where we'd think forgetfulness and procrastination would be most costly. And so what we with think- the one day clinics. That's right. The right. one day clinics. Because mm-hmm. if you forget or you put that's it off- it. Yeah, it's all over. No no makeup. Yeah. So in those sites, we see um, turnout for flu shots going from 30% to 38% hmm. in these two groups. Again, it and costs And what kind nothing. of financial impact does that have on a company? Any guesstimates? <laughs> That's a really good question. I think, you know, it depends on exactly uh, what, so I don't have a great guesstimate on flu shots. It, it could have a big impact depending on the behavior you're using it mm-hmm. to change. Mm-hmm. So we were focused on flu shots. And one of the ways that I think this has been impactful is this work has been disseminated pretty widely and is increasingly being used for other things too. For instance, we ran a similar study to try to get people to go get colonoscopies. And we saw that that was also effective, just prompting people to think about when will you get a colonoscopy and with whom, write that down for yourself, prompting them to make that concrete plan increase turnout. And so there we can actually sort of think about how many mm-hmm. lives we can save. And it's a very non-negligible number when when you scale this to the whole U.S. It seems so simple. I mean, this this is something that is new that we don't know. I mean, I, that, that, it just seems like shockingly it's so easy simple. to... It's so simple. It's not something that we didn't have any intuitions about. So there okay. were lots of lab experiments that sort of tried to look at this, but we hadn't really seen it used at scale in this incredibly simple, essentially costless way where there's no, a lot of the time we try to use social pressure. So there have been studies on voter turnout, for instance, where I call you and I say, form a plan, but there's something different going on there, right? A, Mm -hmm. it's expensive because I have to make the phone call. B, now we're we're having a conversation about it. So you may feel held accountable to someone. Mm -hmm. So this is literally an anonymous mailing. No one will ever see if you wrote anything on it. And we're seeing these big effects. Again, it costs absolutely nothing more than sending a regular mailing to add this. And so that's where we've seen some so big if impact. So if you're running a business and uh, you're trying to get people to comply with something that might... They might forget that, about, that, they might put off. That they may not want to do because it's a little bit uncomfortable for them to do it or it's just painful for them to do it or it requires them to focus on something. It's not their first priority. This can be a really helpful way to get over that hump. I'd say it has to be something they have some intention to do, right? So if I have, if I send this to you and I say, um, you know, go stand on your head, or make a plan about when you're going to go stand on your head. Well, you have no interest in standing on your head. There's well, no actually, benefit. Actually, that's part of the yoga routine that I would like to learn. So, <laughs> well, if you can frame it that way, <laughs> then it might work. But again, if you're just telling them to do some irrelevant behavior that's a waste of their time, mm-hmm. or that that's how they perceive it, it's mm-hmm. not going to work. But it's got to be in their interest. That's right? right. Something they mean to do, but they might forget or put off, um, and not be like super jazzed about making sure it happens in the moment. This is a way to overcome forgetfulness and procrastination. Do you apply this in your own uh, me search, Katie? Absolutely. 
all of these tactics are now uh, driving my husband crazy, and they're things. Wait, that- <laughs> is it is it life better for him as a result if you're doing the things that are important to you slash him? Maybe, except I'm not sure he loves it when I nag him to make a concrete plan about exactly where and when he'll follow through on various oh, commitments. Oh, I see. You're trying to impose this <laughs> regimen on his behavior. I thought and my own and okay. my own. Yeah, it's it's broader than that, but yeah, uh, no, it's I definitely use it for myself, and I temptation bundle. Meaning? So I listen to lowbrow novels while I exercise and only while I exercise, and they lure me back to the gym. My favorite is The Hunger Games. That's the best for this particular technique. Okay. Wharton Professor listening to The Hunger Games while working out. That that works. All right. Lisa, our producer, is shaking her head saying, I'm going to do that. What stops you, though, from listening to The Hunger Games when you're just lounging around in the evening? Maybe you've had a glass of wine. Your willpower is a little reduced. <laughs> And your your husband says, "Hey, I haven't seen the Hunger Games in a while. What do you say, Katie?" That's a great it's a great question. So actually, an experiment we ran tested different ways of trying this temptation bundling technique. So we had a control group that didn't get access to tempting audio novels at all, and they um, got a gift certificate to Barnes and Noble. We had a full treatment group that gets to listen to the beginning of a tempting audio novel and is told if they want to hear what happens next, they'll have to come back to the gym because we'll be holding it for them in a locked, monitored locker. And then we have oh, so the only way they could access it only can listen to the Hunger Games or whatever tempting novel they've picked is at the gym compared to the control group that just gets a Barnes and Noble gift certificate. Nothing tempting waiting for them at the gym, just a prompt to exercise more. And then we have this intermediate group, actually, that also listens to the beginning of a tempting novel and is told, try to only let yourself listen at the gym, but there's no actual oh, restriction. Try. Try. So just, That's pretty loose. It's just a prompt. It's a suggestion. Maybe if you can link these two things for yourself, this will work. And actually, we see some benefits just in that intermediate group. So it's better if someone else ties your hands and make hmm. sure you can only access it at the gym. That's that's sort of the first best is getting the, getting someone else to handle your self-control problem. But we can actually impose these kinds of rules on ourselves. And it's, I think, related to what we know about how people can set goals and stick to those goals. So this seems to be something that's not impossible for people to self-impose. But it's better if you've got if you've got somebody else. If you have someone else to help you, then you don't have to exert any self-control or willpower to bundle these two things. And then you're probably best off. All right. Well, so this, this leads me to my, uh, my last question for you, Katie. And that is what advice do you have for our listeners who are struggling with self-control and and have had self-control failures what's what's the most important thing that you can impart to them as to what they can do now tomorrow is the first day of a new month it's a fresh start it is it's october 1st tomorrow if you're listening live harness that fresh start start temptation bundling and make concrete plans about all your goals so temptation bundling put 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 something you enjoy and look forward to and crave together with something you know you should do. Only let yourself enjoy that craving or indulgence when you're doing the thing you should. And make concrete plans about when and where you'll follow through on good behaviors. Concrete plans. Put it down in your calendar. You know Where, when, and, and with whom. Uh, that's going to increase the chances of you're actually doing it, which is probably going to get you closer to leading the life you really want to live. That's that's the hope. That is the hope. It's working for me. It's working for Katie, and uh, and Katie is living the dream. So I think you want to do what Katie's doing. Uh, Katie Milkman, thank you so much for joining me this hour uh, here on Work and Life. It's been uh, delightful talking with you and highly instructive. Uh, if you want to learn more about Katie Milkman, you can follow her on Twitter at, get this now, 
K-A-T-Y, Katie, underscore Milkman, M-I-L-K-M-A-N. Katie, thanks again so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Katie Milkman. She brought up a number of techniques for self-control in our conversation. So now, I want to challenge you. Well, invite you to do some me-search. Identify a self-control failure to which you are now falling victim. I'm sure you have at least one. Do you have too much incidental uncertainty? Do minor distractions move your attention away from what matters to you? So try to pinpoint one self-control failure that affects you in a way that you care about and take some action to improve it following Professor Milkman's advice. Try that. What do you discover? As ever, I would love to hear from you. You can write to me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or on Twitter, at Stu Friedman. And if you have ideas for people you'd like to hear me speak with on the show, again, you can just write to me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by commenting there or tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.